Can you imagine the level of a mind that watches wrestling? The audience wants to see action, adventure, wrestling, and plenty of it. Big men in tights, you know the drill. Rammer Slammer. Welcome to Rammer Slammer. I am Ben Flanagan, and we've got a really good show today. Obviously, there's the breaking news today, Thursday, as I'm recording this, that China, the very popular women's wrestler from the Attitude Era, passed away at the age of 46. I'm going to talk to our friend Daniel Wagner about her legacy and what all she was able to accomplish in the WWE and what all has happened since her exit from the company. But first, we have another very special guest, Sports Illustrated's Richard Deitch, the media critic who is well known for not only his Twitter account, at Richard Deitch, but for his weekly media column, The Media Circus, where he breaks down the best and worst in sports media, and he takes a look at the landscape of sports media and the men and women at the professional level and the job that they do, and he also shares with you his favorite journalism week in and week out. Richard also happens to be a big fan of pro wrestling. It's something that he features on his Twitter account and his columns sometimes, and that he features on his excellent podcast, the SI Media Podcast, which you can get on iTunes. I highly recommend you just go ahead and subscribe to it. I recommend you go ahead and follow him on Twitter. If you're a big sports fan, sports media fan like I am, he, he's one of my favorite follows on Twitter. He's one of my favorite writers and, and columnists and, and really overall journalists out there. So I recommend you take a look at his work. It's really terrific, but we're so happy that he decided to be a part of Rammer Slammer this week and talk to us about the mainstream media appeal that WWE has and, and that is obviously growing. He recently wrote one of his Media Circus columns on the popularity of WWE and how ESPN is catering to its fans. So we're happy to have him on to talk about this and we will toss to it right now. Here is my talk with Richard Deitch from Sports Illustrated. This is Ben Flanagan with Rammer Slammer, and I am joined now by Sports Illustrated writer and reporter Richard Deitch, whose media column appears every week on SI.com and whose SI Media podcast is available on iTunes. Richard's recently written an SI.com column, The Media Circus, that focused on the popularity of WWE and how ESPN specifically is catering to its fans. Richard, b before we get into that, we always ask new guests the same question first. Why are you still a pro wrestling fan in your adulthood? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for the invite. I appreciate that. Um, that's a good question because I, I went away from it for a very long time. Um, I watched it as a kid, and then I'd say once I went to college, um, I sort of I lost it, or if nothing else, I sort of kept a tangential eye on it. But by no means was watching it either weekly. Um, there were times even I wouldn't even watch WrestleMania. That's sort of you know, it's uh, sort of just it just was not part of my day to day. And then a couple of years ago, I came back to it, and I think it's just, I just find it like, um, I find it very fun escapism. I, I think it's like, it's just, you know, in the same way, like, a soap opera can be escapism. I think wrestling has those uh, same kind of similarities. I really admire and respect the um, the storytelling and the writing, from, especially when it's good, from those who are behind the scenes. I think it's pretty interesting how they create that circus. 
Some of the performers are unbelievably funny and unbelievably talented personalities, and I respect that. And um, and certainly the athleticism. Um, yeah, it's scripted television, but I admire a lot of these guys. They, you know, they're really good athletes. They work out, and what they do is very, very hard. So I I, I am a casual fan of it. Um, I'm not a diehard. I'm not watching, like, uh, um, you know, any kind of um, – uh, wrestling beyond WWE, and I probably, you know, I'll try to catch Raw or I'll tape it, but I'm not one who will watch even SmackDown on a weekly basis. I do like to read. I will say, um, I like to read wrestling stories that are really well done by, like, people like David Shoemaker, The Masked Man. Like, that's really interesting to me. I, like, I, I find that genre particularly um, really compelling. Those who can write really interesting pieces about wrestling and behind the scenes and when people sort of journalistically attack it. So, um, so yeah, I went away from it for a long time, got back into it a couple of years ago, and um, and I have to admit, I just, I just, I find it amusing. Uh, maybe it takes me back to my childhood, but it's, it's, it's many times very, very enjoyable. Well, that was actually going to be my next question, what you just touched on there. Other than watching the televised programming, how do you ingest pro wrestling content, whether it's WWE product or news about the industry, and how often do you do it? I, you know, I ingest it through, uh, the, um, at least on television, through Raw. And, you know, if there's a really big pay-per-view or WrestleMania, I'll figure out a way to uh, to check that out. I try to read, like, um, Shoemaker. I'll read SB Nation's wrestling coverage. Uh, at Sports Illustrated, we have a guy, Justin uh, Bassaro, who's been doing wrestling lately now. He does a really good job. He, like, recently had a long sit-down with Hulk Hogan, which I found really, really interesting. So online, Twitter, uh, through traditional, like, Raw. Uh, and then occasionally I'll listen to some podcasts, whether it's uh, Cheap Heap or Chris Jericho's podcast. I've heard Steve Austin's podcast uh, couple of times um for uh jr ross's podcast a couple of times so th- that would be the combination of of all of it and i kind of also like i kind of like the fact that um there's a group of people in the sports media who you would not expect to be wrestling fans who are wrestling fans and i'm probably you know you probably can put me on that list and i think it's just pretty interesting that you know it's like kind of these one things it's it's just something that's sort of a little <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit different than, um, you know, than just sort of like, hey, I like the NHL or, hey, I like the uh, NBA. Well, and it's not necessarily information that people always volunteer publicly. So how have you shared your pro wrestling fandom with friends and family and readers throughout the years? And when did you decide to go public with it as a sports media figure? Yeah, I don't, first of all, I don't, I don't think going public with it, I mean, you know, it's not like I'm, uh, you know, say I'm going to be uh voting for a communist or something like that. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, I don't think it's, 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 it's not, it's not some kind of scarlet letter. Uh, there are people certainly on Twitter who are like, what are you doing? It's fake. Yeah. Duh. No kidding. So it doesn't bother me with that. And I'm not even sure when I made the decision. I, um, I just, I find wrestling stories that are well done, really, really interesting. And I've always shared them on Twitter and I love wrestling analogies. There's nothing that I like is more amusing to me than when I can like claim like, uh, you know, like Skip Bayless, Darren O'Bell, and uh, Danny Cannell are like the new NWO or something like that. Now, that really doesn't make sense, but it just amuses me in my 16-year-old mind that, uh, you know, you can equate sports media figures with certain wrestling figures. So I've never shot away from it. And, 
you know, I would, I, this is just my thought. Like, I think it's probably been helped by somebody as well-known and popular as Bill Simmons, who's a wrestling fan. So that's a guy with four or five million Twitter followers, let's say, who's putting that out there all the time. Uh, Michelle Beadle is a big wrestling fan. She went away from it for a little bit, sort of publicly, but is, um, but is back now. And so, again, uh, there are a number of media people, far high, high, more high-profile than me, who talk about it, tweet about it, write about it often. So I, I, it's not um, – I don't consider it a scarlet letter by any means. It's um, it's something that I find interesting. It's not something I'm obsessed by or um, or I would even call myself like a hardcore fan. But it, but it is something, um, you know, in the same way like I like the Americans on FX. I, I, like, uh, I like WWE programming. Again, I think it's just um, – I think it's just the escapism element. I think it, it's just interesting to me. Well, that being said, do you ever feel like there is a need to manage your pro wrestling engagement on social media or elsewhere so that you might avoid alienating any followers who aren't as interested in it? No, because I, I try my best to be honest on Twitter or, as, or as, one, as, as one can be as honest as one can be on Twitter, you know, admits sort of understanding that you're editing tweets or self-editing tweets. So, no, I, I'm just – I would take the um, – you know, I'll take – people who are sort of complaining about it and uh, or who don't like it. And, you know, it's very easy to unfollow me in that situation or not follow my content. And, again, like I said, I like, you know, human beings are sort of composed of a lot of different unique, interesting things. So, you know, I like on the one hand that, like, one day I might um, tweet out something from the Paris Review, and then my next tweet could be, like, uh, you know, a promo cut by Bray Wyatt. You know, that that might not be the most normal Twitter feed, but... You know, it's just reflective of who I am at that moment. So um, it's definitely not something I hide from at all or would modify if I got some complaints about it. Well, and as your recent column obviously focused on more and more mainstream media companies, sports or otherwise, they're increasing their coverage of WWE and pro wrestling, including ESPN, Rolling Stone, the New York Times, and, and your site. Why do you think it's taken this long for high-level outlets to shift their focus on the WWE or at least increase it? Um, well, I think, you know, I think for increasing is probably the better way to frame it because I think all of those outlets, including SI, have certainly written or covered wrestling in the past. I mean, Hulk Hogan was on the cover of SI, I think, in 1985. So, you know, at least in terms of acknowledgement, it goes back that way. The ESPN thing is the most interesting one because obviously it's the biggest sports brand in the country and it impacts so much of the discussion of sports in, in the U.S., and so their um, tangible and real relationship is something that is interesting or is something that really has an impact, I think, on <clears throat> viewers and perception. And they made a decision, at least in my opinion, that the WWE has the demographics they want, a lot of men, a lot of men under 45 or so. Um, it's, uh, they found that the, the, um, there was so much overlap between those who uh, watch SportsCenter or follow SportsCenter on social media and those who are wrestling fans or who engage in WWE content. So they made a business decision that, listen, the, we, the, there are similar aligned forces here in terms of interest. And if we can um, cater to the wrestling fan a little bit and maybe bring more people under our tent, we should do it. The larger question is, and this is one I did not address and I wish I did. And Dave Meltzer, uh, who I have great respect for, called me out on it, And I rightly so, by the way, he totally made the right point. The, the question now should be asking, will ESPN cover everything about pro wrestling? Will they cover the underbelly? Will they cover drug use? Will they cover when criminality happens? Or will they just do 
you know, let's bring John Cena on or let's bring Brock Lesnar on. Let's have a very fluff, fun interview. And as fun as those interviews can be, um, you know, it's a good question. Does, does ESPN now have a responsibility to cover the downside of this stuff, which I thought was a an interesting question and one I should have addressed. But, you know, everybody who is going to cater to wrestling is catering to um, interest. SI is doing the same thing. When we've had wrestling content on SI.com, it's done very well. So we are we are following where consumers – well, we, we are trying to attract consumers to our website. And if wrestling content can bring people onto the website, I think you should provide it for them because, you know, maybe then they'll stick around and read an NFL story or an NBA story. So – and wrestling – um, until recently, I think you would—I mean, you—you you would have better sense on this than me, given um, you know you do a podcast on it and you probably follow you follow it much closer than I do. Wrestling was underserved as a content play for a long, long time, especially digitally. It's only in the last five years or so where we've seen an explosion of podcasts and and wrestling content online. So I think you know you, you're certainly not at the beginning of it, but maybe you're you're not late on it if you start to do it as a big place. And so for some of these big sports organizations, I think they see it as opportunity. I think it also takes wrestling fans who work for those companies to sort of serve as ambassador between the two. And on your podcast with David Shoemaker, then with ESPN, obviously now with The Ringer, he said the national media attention wrestling gets often feels like validation for big wrestling fans. Do you feel any sense of duty as a wrestling fan to contribute to that kind of validation, given you're an employee of a national media company? No, I don't. But... If people think it's cool that someone from SI is publicly talking about wrestling, I think that's great. In the same way, I'm sure, you know, Shoemaker might have said that about ESPN. But no, I don't. I don't. It's not my job to validate anyone else's fandom because uh, I, that fandom is that fandom, and it's legit, and it doesn't need me to give it a stamp. In the same way, um, if you're a fan of like single A baseball, you don't need Sports Illustrated to write about single A baseball to legitimize that fandom. That fandom exists. So I would say it's not my job or responsibility at all. But if people think it's cool that, like, hey, there's this Sports Illustrated guy and you, you know, you only think that Sports Illustrated doing these long-form stories and these guys are all serious and they're all whatever, Ivy League, et cetera. If someone thinks it's cool that, um, you know, here's a guy who's uh, sending out wrestling stuff, I think that's great. Um, but it goes back to what we talked about earlier, just in that I, I don't, we're not monoliths. Like, we have – I hope that journalists in particular have varied interests from – um, and, you know, or at least I'll just use me as an example. Like, I, you know, I'm someone who, like, loves to listen to NPR or read The Economist. And then, like, literally, like, in the next hour, I may be watching, like, old uh, videos of Sting flying down from, uh, you know, the ceiling and, like, bashing the NWO in the head. Now, I don't know what that says about me, but that's just me. And so um, I don't apologize for it. And, um, and, you know, hopefully people can appreciate those kind of varied interests. Well, and you've said that you don't consider it a scarlet letter, you don't apologize for it, but I'm curious if and when you pitch WWE content or you just decide to do it, have you ever experienced any kind of blowback in the past, if any at all? Has it ever been laughed off, or in your experience, have your editors typically understood the opportunity for growing audience through wrestling-focused content? I can only speak for me that no one has ever laughed it off. And again, I'm a specialist when it comes to so It's all done under media. I don't think they would laugh that off regardless because I think, I think it's a legit media story when traditional outlets um, uh, write about or are trying to attract wrestling audience. The one thing I could tell you at SI is that, you know, we have wrestling content now um, on our Extra Mustard page. That took a little bit of convincing from the bosses, but not, not, not as much as you might think. And, you know, we've now had wrestling content on there for a long time. So if there was any pushback, I think that pushback was, was – uh, 
was quick, well, quickly receded. So I think our bosses have been pretty good about this. But I can just tell you on my – for my personal experience, none. I have never had one editor say a thing about me when I've written about the nexus between wrestling content and traditional sports media. Um, in fact, the opposite. They've said, oh, that was pretty interesting. Um, so no, never. No one's ever told me not to write about it ever. Nor, nor has anyone ever met, said at SI to me not to tweet about it. Not one. Your SI Media podcast has so far had three wrestling-related guests in Shoemaker and the WWE's Paul Heyman and Renee Young. What kind of autonomy do you have in booking your guests, and what kind of value does your company see in featuring that kind of content on the podcast? Yeah, total autonomy in terms of booking guests. Um, if there was really anybody like ridiculously controversial, I would let my bosses know, but I don't even know who in sports that would be. Um, so total autonomy on booking, total autonomy on questions. And the, the usually, uh, I shouldn't say usually, but my the people I want on are, are people interesting to me. So I found Heyman, Shoemaker, and Renee Young very interesting in their own unique way. Renee Young obviously has the connection in that she's a broadcaster on the WWE, so I think that fits naturally with a media podcast. Shoemaker obviously is, um, you know, he and Meltzer are probably the foremost wrestling writers. They do very different things, but... Um, you know, I put them right up there. So he was just interesting to me because I, I'm a huge fan of his work, and I think he he's sort of created a whole new genre of of wrestling writing. And then Heyman and I just particularly love. I think he's like a fascinating figure in American entertainment. Um, he's He has done broadcasting for multiple uh, wrestling affiliations, but he just understands the business, and he understands the connection and the corollary between media and um, and pro wrestling and sort of, its impact there. So he was, when I decided to have this podcast, he was one of the five people, like, I really want them on no matter what. And so that was phenomenal. He's the only person who's come in studio and done the podcast. Actually, I guess Zach Lowe, too. So he's one of two people who's come into SI to actually do it uh, in person. We usually do it on the phone. And he was great. And um, and the the wrestling-related podcasts have done very well. Um, came in. David might have been the third most listened. He's, I think he's the third most listened to at this point. Renee Young did very, very well as well. Um, Shoemaker did well, not as good as the other two, but that's not surprising because the other two are far more famous. So, it, yeah, I'm, um, I made those choices. And, um, you know, I hope in the future to have Michael Cole. I did a Q&A with um, for SI.com. He has a really fascinating background before the WWE, and I think he would be a good podcast guest. And, and then we'll see heading forward. Um, you know, I would love to interview one of the McMahons. Uh, whether Shane, Vince, or Steph, to talk to them just specifically about how they view media and media outreach when it comes to their content. That would be a phenomenally fascinating podcast. I don't know if they would sit down and do it, but that would be that would be of incredible interest to me. So that might be a goal to shoot for in the next couple of months and years. The celebrity storylines and other things that WWE does for crossover appeal, they hit and miss. The Jon Stewart-Seth Rollins feud was pretty fun. The Ronda Rousey-WrestleMania moment was exciting, but there was no follow-up to it. How do you think WWE has done that effectively in recent years, and how, how successful do you think it's been in, in finding that crossover appeal? That's an excellent question, um, because it, you're totally right. It's massively hit or miss. Um, the Jon Stewart thing worked. I think it worked because he, he you kind of know he's a wrestling fan. And... Um, you know, he sold it, which is always you want your performers to sell it. And I think and I think people, you know, I mean, bought, buying it is sort of like in itself kind of a funny thing. But they bought it enough where they didn't mock it. 
where if you go back in the day, like David Arquette becoming a champion just seems absurd. And some of the other times sort of celebrities are around, it, it just, it misses bad. Um, you know, you wonder like in the writer's room, like what's going on with WWE sometimes, some of the suggestions that, um, that they make. But, you know, the, the, the larger overall message here is that they want to cross over badly. They, they want Hollywood attention. They want their people to morph into different places. I think it's honestly, if you find this interesting, it's one of the reasons I think they've been so good to me at Sports Illustrated is because I, I, I'm at a place which is very interesting media to them. It doesn't cover them often compared to if like traditional wrestling places want to get interviews with their talent. Like they've always been very good with us when it comes to making their talent available. And I think it's just part of a larger outreach that the WWE in order to grow, really needs to to continue to bring more people in the wrestling tent. And the way to do that, obviously, is to go through, uh, you know, is to find people who are not part of the WWE universe at this point. Um, so, yeah, those are really hit or miss. As, as a general rule, I don't particularly love the love when actors and actresses sort of become part of the storyline. I always think that's incredibly silly with, like I mentioned, like the Arquette thing, just, you know, taking it to the silliest degree. But if, you know, you do it every now and then or – it's sort of a special occasion or like somebody comes out very surprisingly at WrestleMania, like Rousey did a couple of years ago, you know, then, then it might work. Well, and right before WrestleMania 31 last year, the WWE announced that they re-signed Brock Lesnar to a three-year deal with the company on SportsCenter, which you noted in your column. Lesnar is probably the company's biggest money in television draw, so it was a big win for them. But do you think that the WWE has sort of misused Brock Lesnar in 2016 in, in recent months? I do. It's kind of odd. Like he's not used a lot, but I, I think from what I understand or read that his contract is not doesn't call for a ton of dates. So maybe they're sort of limited with him. But um, I do. I, I I think he should be the belt holder. I think I, I think he's a more interesting figure as holding the belt, whether he's a face or a heel. He he to me is is and this is not to knock Roman Reigns, so I think it's knocked away too much, and I kind of like as a performer, but um, I think Brock should be the champ, and I think he's a more interesting champion because you've set him up as this sort of unbeatable, mythical beast figure, yet he's not the champ. So it kind of, to me, takes away from his, like, kind of uh, veneer of, like, unbeatability. Um, on top of that, to me, and because this is a personal thing, anytime you can get Paul Heyman more front and center and in front of the camera, that is good for your product. And so I'm with you. Some of these sort of Lesnar feuds have been odd. Like the the Ambrose Lesnar feud, well I think I really like both performers, just it just sort of seemed to be a waste of a of of those two guys where they could have been in more interesting situations. Uh I like Lesnar Undertaker. That was fairly interesting to me. But yeah, I, I feel like the WWE doesn't know what to do with Lesnar right now. And you know, I don't know if they don't love him, if it's a question of, like, they don't like his promos or whatever, but you have the best guy with him in the business who does promos in Heyman. So I would rather see him um, – I would rather see him front and center. I wish he had the belt. I think that really actually hurt. I think Seth Rollins was becoming a great performer and was a phenomenal champ as a heel. And I think, you know um, – and this is where I think the WWE just got caught a little bit. They had a lot of injuries, including to Rollins and Cena, and they had to sort of come up with some stuff on the fly. When everybody gets healthy – I think they're going to have a lot of options, and hopefully they start using Lesnar better. 
last question, Richard. What do you consider the biggest headline-creating event in WWE in the last three to five years that really penetrated the mainstream and actually grabbed people's attention? And is is it going to take a person, whether it's a man or a woman on the roster, or is it going to take individual moments at, at events like WrestleMania or on Raw to continue to do that for the company? That's a good question. I don't know if I have a perfect answer. I'm not sure. Um, I think... You know, in thinking about it, I don't know if there's a singular individual who could come in and all of a sudden make it popular. Like, like, I mean, you know, I'm making this up. Like, I don't even know. Like, it's not like Floyd Mayweather can come into WWE and all of a sudden bring a million people. Or, you know, maybe Rousey could do that a little bit, but I'm not even sure. I think they need to have these, like, unbelievable moments that cross over, that people sort of talk about. And, you know, they try to create that with Shane McMahon's leap uh, in WrestleMania, and they got a lot of attention for that. That was that video was shown everywhere. Now, again, that's that's not going to, you know, it's not going to win you a million new fans, but my thought is to sort of, like, make, it's just to have, like, sort of incredibly memorable moments at these big events to get people talking about them on social media, and then you get others like, hey, i got to check out what this is about. My instinct would tell me that Hulk Hogan eventually is going to come back to the WWE and appear at a WrestleMania. I don't know if that's going to sort of like fall into what you're talking about because he's a little too old and a little time has passed. But but stuff like that, I think, is how what the WWE should be thinking, like creating these unbelievable things that like people talk about within the wrestling universe. Shane coming back uh, in February in Raw was incredible, and they still they're still trying to get steam out of that in April. Like, that's the kind of stuff I think they have to do that people will talk about rather than, hey, you know, let's bring in um, John Jones from the MMA to, to be a wrestling character. Well, you can read him on SI.com, download the SI Media Podcast on iTunes, and follow him on Twitter at Richard Deitch. Richard, I'm personally a huge fan of what you do, and I love the SI Media Podcast. Thank you so much for doing this, and please keep up the fantastic work. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, the nice words. Check in the mail. Next up, I'm going to talk to our friend Daniel Wagner, whom you can follow on Twitter at TheDanielWagner. He, again, is a huge wrestling fan, and he was very saddened to learn about the death of China, whose real name is Joan Laurer. And again, she died way too young. It's always sad to see another professional wrestler die so young. There are just too many, and it happens way too often. It's just a really unfortunate trend, especially for, obviously, the families of those wrestlers, but also for wrestling fans who followed their careers so closely. And China was a huge part of my pro wrestling education in terms of what she contributed to the Attitude Era as a part of DX and, and what she did after that. So wrestling lost a, a major contributor to the business overall, and, and Daniel, I thought, had some really poignant things to say about her career and what she contributed to the business. So we'll toss it right now to my conversation with Daniel Wagner. This is Ben Flanagan with Rammer Slammer, and I am joined once again by Daniel Wagner. Daniel, how are you? Uh, dealing. Dealing well, with horrible news. Yeah, today we learned about the death of China. Her real name, Joan Laurer, she died at the far too young age of 46. News, news was broken on Thursday morning. And, yeah, it's, it's tragic news. Obviously, she was no doubt an innovator in pro wrestling and really sports entertainment as a whole. She was a 
founding member of DX. She was the only female wrestler to ever hold the Intercontinental Championship. She was the first woman to participate in the Royal Rumble and King of the Ring. The WWE has since acknowledged her passing via social media with Triple H and his wife Stephanie McMahon even tweeting condolences. Daniel, you wrote some thoughtful words about China's passing on Facebook. What stuck out to me the most is you said that she was a tragic character in and out of the ring. What did you mean by that? Well, um, tragic, you know, first of all, in her life, her post-WWE life and uh, with the drug abuse and addictions, um, the porn thing, I really don't care because as with any thing that's going on with anyone's life, I don't walk in your shoes, and who am I to sit here and judge your past? Um, But tragic in the ring because, you know, she was brought in as this statuesque man-woman and how she was portrayed and, uh, you know, this bodyguard for two ravenous wrestlers that, you know, they needed this woman to help protect them. And she dealt with that. And we forget at times how much verbal abuse she caught. People calling her a man, you know, the whole, like, China got her penis lopped off and, you know, she was a man at one time and all this other stuff that she had to deal with. You know, I've read her book and she was a very insecure person because of her look. And she got to the top, changed the perceptions. Yeah, she beat Double J's sexist crap to win the IC title. You know, she got into the Royal Rumble. She was someone who, in a time of puppies and pillow fights, that was a legit wrestler. And I think we gloss over that because of how bad women's wrestling was in the WWF slash E at that time, that she was a legit wrestler, and she never got due for it. You know, she became a beautiful woman. Yes, she had surgery and, you know, kind of improved, but she had to because of the machine. And she got over all of that. She ended up making the cover of Playboy, She, which, say what you will, was a big deal back then, but never got what she was deserved. She was always, instead of, you know, one of the wrestlers at times, a sideshow. She never got taken seriously. When she won the IC title, it was heavily criticized. You know, it came out later that there was heavy talk of her becoming the world champion. And this was around 1999 when she was arguably up there with The Rock and Mankind and Stone Cold, Michaels and, well, Michaels was gone by that point, but Triple H, all of their big guys, Joni's right there with them. And you think about what could have been and what her later career ended up being, it's tragic that someone that was so good, and, you know, she wasn't the best wrestler, and she wasn't the best talker, but she had a look, she had a style, and a lot of the times in this business, that's all you need. 
I mean, look at Ahmed Johnson and how long he stuck around being a horrible wrestler and no mic skills because he had the look. The stuff she ended up doing with Eddie Guerrero was great. It was about the only good thing of her, her post-career or later years in the WWE. And then tragic in how quickly she was written out of the, the history books. When they mention DX, when they do any kind of retrospective, you never talk. they never talk about China. China never existed. And in the hypocrisy of keeping Sonny in the Hall of Fame after everything she's done and the myriad of people in that Hall of Fame that have really black marks against them, it's a shame. She was as innovative as Trish Stratus and Lita. Uh, you could argue more so, but she never got her due. And it's kind of sad. You know, like I saw Stephanie McMahon's tweet, and it came off as so insincere and PC. She had to. You know, we forget that she was the other woman. She was the one that broke her and Triple H up. <laughs> Unfortunately, she was the boss's daughter. They can't fire the boss's daughter. So instead, you pull down China because it's easier. To me, all that's really tragic. You know, in a company where one man slash a select few can dictate your entire career and your life based on their whims, you know, it it sucks. It sucked. It had to have been hard to be her in that world. So, yeah. And I mean, and also just tragic in the way it all it all ended. And you know, it it sucks that anytime X-Pac does a shoot interview, he runs her down. Anytime anyone does, they just run her down and not for anything of substance. She wasn't a bad person. You listen to Mick Foley talk, he loved her and how good he she was with his kids. And you listen to any of them that are reputable or respectable talk about her. You know, she was she was a good good decent person that ended up just having a a bad run. And that's what's tragic to me. Yeah, and it it is it is tragic for sure and, and the imprint she left on the business is, is undeniable. And I'll say, as somebody who who wasn't the biggest fan of DX during the whole Attitude Era, I always thought that she was the most interesting part of DX. And, and she... I always wondered who the one person was that wasn't on board with DX. <laughs> I finally found that person. Yeah, well, it just, yeah, well, it wasn't my they weren't into them. Yeah, it just wasn't. It wasn't my favorite, you know, part of it. You know, and I, I trended, you know, way more in terms of this was back when I was a teenager. Like I can definitely appreciate aspects of it now. But I just know back when it was all going down, I was just much more interested in the Stone Cold stuff and the Rock stuff and, and DX stuff for whatever reason didn't do it for me. But that being said, I do think China, I remember at the time thinking, wow, China, this is something we've obviously never seen before. And so for that reason alone, if you want to break it down that generally, that simply, she was a major innovator. And she did things, obviously, in the business that no woman ever had up to that point. She was clearly on unequal footing with so many of the men in, in the industry. And, and, you know, honestly, the Attitude Era, while, you know, many would probably consider it from one angle, 
the company's better years or best years. In many ways, it was the worst years too, because I mean, yeah. it was it was sophomoric, it was ugly in many ways. It kind of embraced the whole traveling circus aspect of it that people often associate with pro wrestling in general. It exploited people's looks, it exploited people's personalities, it, it saw the worst in in people and. You know, and that, that was a shame because at times it didn't necessarily amplify the good in them and take advantage of what they could bring to the company. Instead, it would focus on the opposite. I think that was the case with China. You know, if you want to look at it as a traveling circus, I think the way that WWE sort of promoted her and introduced her to the world was if this was their freak show, then China was their freak, right? Who could stand up to no, a, mm-hmm. a woman a bodybuilding, you know, built woman who could stand up to the men, how could this be, right? She's the ninth wonder of the world. This is an impossibility. And, you know, yeah. that that's kind of a weird way of looking at it and, and, and an unfortunate way of selling it. But I think it undermines and sort of ignores the fact that she was an incredible nonverbal storyteller. Like you said, she wasn't necessarily the best in the ring. She wasn't necessarily a great talker. That's That's true but she could kill you with a look, right? And I just thought that they did manage to utilize a lot of her best strengths, and she was able to yeah. bring a ton to the table. And, you know, she's an icon. When you go back to the Attitude Era, and you're right on the Attitude Era, if you go back and watch some of it, a lot of the wrestling isn't good. But we we look back on it with fond eyes because of, Mankind, The Rock, DX, and Stone Cold, because they were so good at what they were doing, and they knew how to reach an audience. But there's so much hypocrisy in all of this, because Triple H goes on Stone Cold's podcast and is asked about China and says that, you know, I don't want my daughters Googling her and seeing the other stuff. Well, sir, what if they Google you and your crew in blackface making fun of the nation of domination or the whole um, sausage bit you did or the time that you were wearing a G-string and, you know, moon the crowd? Or, you know, your best friend, old Uncle Sean, humping the Canadian flag. I mean, there is so much stuff that is in that guy's past in their own that it's such a hypocrisy, you know? I guess you did porn. Like, so what? It, does it really matter? Is it such a black eye? You know, we want to get into black eyes. What about the black eyes that Stone Cold's put on his wife? You know, let's, you know, let's just throw the cards on the table. You know, the black eye that Randy Orton was a MIA soldier, that went AWOL. We can sit and go through so many things, and yet she was the fall. She was the one that they they picked out of it. It, I honestly think that she should be seen as a feminist icon because of the things she overcame in a man's world. She did things that we will never see again. And can I say this as a fan of intergender wrestling? because of AIW up here in Cleveland and watching Candice LeRae, and not because I like to see a woman get beat by a man, but because I like seeing a woman overcome a man. It gets fun when Candice LeRae makes her comeback. Everybody reacts because we want to see this prick get his ass kicked. And China did that. And she was willing to bump with them. She was willing to do, you know, whatever she had to. And... That's something we'll never see. 
I mean, can you imagine as, as good as Sasha Banks is, they'll never let her wrestle Sami Zayn, you know, even though those two could have a great program together. It'll never happen. China would make it happen. China worked. And yes, it was a different time, but she was great. She had the size and the intimidation that, yeah, it made sense that she could beat up Jeff Jarrett. It made sense that she could go toe-to-toe with the Val Venuses and the godfathers of the group. It all made sense that she was that believable. Yeah, I mean, and there's another hypocrisy. They, this year, put in a guy who, you know, was a pimp on TV in his most notable role and brought out the hoe train every time he came out. But the most glaring hypocrisy, Daniel, is if she is going to be cast out and, and, and seen as an outcast by this company because of the porn or, or whatever she did, Sean Waltman was a part of that too, was he not? Yeah. I believe he is signed in, in the Legends program for WWE. Oh, yeah. He has an association with them right now, so tell me what the difference is. When was the last time Sean Waltman didn't appear on stage at the end of the Hall of Fame with his boys? Yeah. You know? Like, Sean Waltman gets the pass because he's in the clique, and he says Triple H is his boy, and he looks out for his own. And I'm like, I'm, what I'd like to know is, did they ever really reach out to her with their drug rehab program they tout so highly of that's never worked for any of them? It was kind of amazing that, you know, Scott Hall and Jake Roberts Waltman and all of them were there big. We're going to get them clean. We care about the ones that we left in pain and broken. This never really worked. And, you know, and there's the other end with it is that it's easy to criticize her for the post, post-wrestling days, but it's hard. It's really damn hard for a wrestler to transition. It's not, I mean, this isn't to sit there and compare them, but soldiers have a hard time transitioning. Pro athletes have a hard time transitioning because the one thing that you have identified with your entire life and your entire working life is gone and you're 30 years old and you now have to figure out what you're going to have you're going to do. Where's the money going to come from? I do not have a discernible skill that I can use. What was China going to do after she got done wrestling? She's going to teach school. She sold in her wares. And when you've been made the sideshow your entire career, then you typically go back to being the sideshow. She was never able to get over what she was made. WWE made her, and it also broke her at the same time, which is like a lot of wrestlers up and down the line, unfortunately. You know, she was supposed to be at WrestleCon this year and no-showed it. The promoters later said they spoke with her and she was sort of out of it and didn't really seem to know what was going on. And then she no-showed it, which was, you know, at that point, unfortunately, kind of typical for her in appearances, not unlike Sean Waltman. So, you know, that's it. We lose another wrestler and another icon in some way and you know the machine goes on i will be interested to see what they do on monday you know she should be getting the 10 bell salute they should have 
the Usos or whoever, the women, wearing something of hers, you know, iconic to pay tribute. They should be doing everything possible. She should be inducted in the Hall of Fame posthumously. I think that's how you say that word. She should be given all of the credit that she was always due with video packages and everything else. I wouldn't be surprised if they mention, if Michael Cole mentions she passed and we go on to the next Bo Dallas and Dolph Ziggler match. And that's that's a damn shame. That's a really damn shame. Yeah. Well, like you said, I mean, this is just another story of another dead wrestler far too young and it's it's a tragedy every time and in this case it's you raise a lot of great points about her passing and her legacy and yeah, it's it's just important to acknowledge her role uh, in in the business and the history and I think unfortunately it'll be her death that shines a bigger light on what all she contributed and and that's a shame that she couldn't see it you know, in her in her life, but at least she's getting recognition right now, and, and hopefully, like you said, the WWE will do the right thing next week. Daniel, sorry to have you back on under, under these circumstances, but I'm glad you were able to do it. Hey, no problem, man. You know, I'm always here. Ain't got nothing better to do than talk that last one. Rammer Slammer is produced and edited by Ben Flanagan for the Alabama Media Group and AL.com. Find us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Rammer Slammer. Thanks for listening. Hi there, I'm Dave Willis, the crying wrestling fan from Tosh Photo and YouTube, and you're listening to Rammer Slammer right here on AL.com. Let me tell you, Rammer Slammer, it'll still be damn it.